Well, good evening. Romans and four. The first week we looked at what I call the Revelation, which is chapter one, verses one through 18. Last week we began to look at the redemption, which goes from verse 18. And we started off by looking at the ghastly condition. And then we began to look at what I call the glorious conversion, which is the principle of starting off with justification. The favor, or favor is the source for justification, chapter three. Faith is the means for justification, <clears throat> chapter four. Fruit is the result of justification in chapter five. Taylor, Tyler, great seeing you, friend. I've missed seeing you around. Great to have you in church tonight. Bless you. That young man is my hero. What he's gone through, he's my hero. And I bless him in Jesus' name. And I bless Jesus because of men like, like him. God bless you, pal. Fruit is the result of justification. Let me just touch three, perhaps four things in chapter five as I move to chapter six. He opens up by saying, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Then it goes on to simply say, through whom also we have access. Then it goes on to simply uh, make the other statement that speak of the process. Verse one was a shock to the Gentiles. When Paul speaks of having peace with God, that was an unknown commodity to the Gentile people. They lived in fear of God or the gods. How could they appease them? Because they're always angry. For Paul to come up and simply, simply say, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. That was unknown to them. It was caused them to have a, a sense of bewilderment. How can you have peace with the gods? If verse 1 was a shock to the Gentiles, verse 2 was a shock to the Jews. The Apostle Paul says, by whom also we have access through faith. The Jews never had access. Or they knew about peace because they had uh, an offering which is called the peace offering, in which they could be at peace with God. But access to God? The only time that they had any sense of the awareness of God was when they were under the covering of the Shekinah. As they wandered through the wilderness, 
And even when they landed in the promised land, the light went out. They did not have access. Even when they built the temple, the high priest could go into the holiest place once a year. A small number of priests could go in once a day, but not into the, into the center part, just into the outer part. So the priests, they could enter the court, the priests, but after that, you got the court of the men. Outside of that, there was the court of the women. Outside that was the court of the, of the foreigner. The Jew did not have access to the immediate presence of God. They could observe him from a distance, but not know him intimately. Paul says, because we've been justified by the grace of God through faith, we not only have peace with him, which surprised the Gentiles, we have access to him, which surprised the Jews. We can come. In fact, the writer of the Hebrews says it this way, therefore, come boldly before the throne of grace, that you might find grace to help in time of need. Come close. In verse 3, what Paul said in verse 3 was a shock to the church. Paul goes on to make the statement in which he talks about, and not only that, but we glory in tribulation. Up until the first couple of verses, the church is it's comfortable. Yes, we have peace with God. Yes, we have access to God. God is doing something for us. In verse 3, Paul says, but God wants to do something in us. I would much rather God do something for me than do something in me. I, I am thrilled when God is doing something in you. I think that's a marvelous thing because I think the Lord needs to get the church to grow up as long as he doesn't try to do it on me. <laughs> and note what Paul says. We glory in tribulation. No, we don't. But we ought to because tribulation produces perseverance. You see, justification can produce comfort, but it can't produce character. Character is not what God does for us, it's what God is doing in us. And Paul begins to move into this in chapter 6. And so let's go to chapter 6. In chapter 5, we're given the love aspect of salvation. In chapter, toward the end of chapter 5, we're given the life aspect of salvation. God did not plan evil, but he permitted it. If evil had never been permitted, the wisdom of God could not have appeared in overruling it. 
the justice of God could not have appeared in punishing it. The mercy of God could not have appeared in pardoning it. And the power of God would not have appeared in subduing it. So God did not produce evil, but he did permit it. And so let me move to chapter 6. Now that was interesting. What did you like that? What level are you at? The, the peace level? That's a good thing. I've just started character 101. <laughs> and uh, I don't like the, I didn't like the first lesson. I simply asked if I could take the course over again. When you come to chapter 6, basically, he talked about the painful process, which is God working in us. Because all sanctification simply means that God is calling forth the image of his son out of us. That which he deposited in us, he wants it to come forth and to be revealed. Michelangelo is on record of having said, people look at a large piece of marble, but I see something else. He said, when I saw one particular piece of marble, I saw David. And he said, the more I could chip away the marble, the more David came out of the rock. And that's what God is wanting to do with us in the principle and the process of sanctification. And so chapter 6, underscore the confusion. Chapter 7, the conflict. And chapter 8, the conquest. Chapter 6. Paul, having made the statement where sin abounds, Grace does much more abound at the conclusion of chapter 5. He has to face the consequences of that statement in chapter 6. If grace abounds where there's sin, let's sin. More sin, more grace. More grace, that's a good thing. So God will be glorified because I'm committing sin. Now Paul has to deal with this problem. And he deals with it by asking two questions. And the first question underscores this. Sin as a tool. The end justifies the means. That's the first issue. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Because we know what you've said, Paul, and we believe what you say, and, we, and so we want grace to abound. Paul responds, by no means. We die to sin. How can we live to it any longer? And so in an answer to the first question, whether sin is a positive tool, Paul says no. 
and to support his argument for saying no. He uses the picture of baptism. He said, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? If you've been united with him in death, we will certainly be united with him in his life. Paul simply said, no, when you become justified and you manifest it in the right of baptism, at that moment you're simply saying, I am dying to the old that I might live for the new. But the second question is not just sin as a tool, but sin as a trap. Now Paul Aston has another proposition. Before, if grace abounds, where sin abounds, where then let sin. And Paul says, uh-uh. You can't make two, you can't make sin a tool for grace. Now he deals with the trap. What shall we say then? Because we are no longer under the law. Hallelujah. That means to say, if I'm no longer under the law, I can drive as fast as I like. I like that. Years ago, I wanted to live in Montana because they had no speed limit. The roads were long and wide, but there was nothing else there. Boom. You could drive as fast as the old vehicle would take you. Paul says, shall we sin then? Because we're not under the law. So I have to ask you a question. What law is he talking about? How many kinds of law, how many various forms of law are there? Well, he's certainly not speaking of Roman law. Because you try to break the Roman law and you suffer the consequences. But is he speaking of natural law? I would not recommend that you put your big coat on and flap it open and pretend you got wings, then jump off the roof. The law of gravity is going to kick in whether you're a Christian or not. You jump off a high cliff and thou shalt land with a bump. So when Paul says we're not under the law, then is he speaking of the moral law? Because society has its tendency to adjust the moral law to suit its own convenience. What was once taboo 40 years ago is not only accepted, it's embraced today because we are changing the moral law. We're changing how we live and what are the standards. Is he speaking of the Mosaic law? As far as the Jews were concerned, that was unalterable. What, the, what Moses said was true. 
they accepted the writings and they accepted the prophets, but the Torah was absolute. For a Jew, the Torah is the absolute term, the absolute word of the law, which cannot be altered in any shape or form. So, obviously, uh, he can't be speaking of uh, the Mosaic law. Is he speaking of the law of sin? No. The law of sin underscores what is the second law of thermodynamics, that things deteriorate. And Baba, I know from experience <laughs> that things deteriorate. My once I had eyes like an eagle. <laughs> now I got eyes like a bat. <laughs> I have to feel my way through. In fact, the Apostle Paul speaks of it this way. The outer man is deteriorating because of the law of sin. But he's speaking that there's another law. It's the law of life, which is found in Christ Jesus. And this law that's found in Christ Jesus is that which invigorates, which stimulates, which stirs, which builds up for the glory of his name. When Paul speaks of the law, not being under the law, he's not speaking of any of those previous laws. He's speaking of the Pharisaic law, or what we call the oral laws. The 613 plus traditions which the Pharisees had introduced to make religion or to restrict the activity of religion. And Paul says, we are not bound by those restrictions, but we certainly are bound by the principles of, uh, of the Mosaic law. In fact, it was fun. About 30 years ago, during the charismatic renewal, people used to say, we're not under law, we're under grace. And I'd listen to them talk and and then I'd simply say, may I ask you a question? Yes, brother Des. What's the question? Seeing that we're not under the Mosaic law, which one are we allowed to break? Do you know the response I'll get? That's such a stupid question. It doesn't need an answer. So let's go to another question. I've got my hand. <laughs> Seeing I didn't make myself clear, which law do you think we're allowed to break? Am I allowed to steal? Am I allowed to kill? Am I allowed to? Now, Des, we've handled that question. We did? Yeah, it's stupid. <laughs> because we're not under law. There are rules which are made by man, religious rules which are made by man, which are not worth a nickel. They're not worth a pinch of salt. You're not bound by them. You're not 
under the pressure, the onus responsibility. When I came to Fort Worth, which is not all that long ago, <laughs> in our church, ladies were not allowed to wear slacks. That was sin. Ladies were not allowed to wear jewelry. Now the guys could wear cufflinks as big as saucers. That was okay. But a woman mustn't wear jewelry. In fact, a woman wasn't even allowed to wear shoes if they had a hole in the front where you could see the toe. Laws, rules, rules made by men had no substantiation from scripture whatsoever, just a man-made idea. Man-made rules and regulations can be questioned and can be challenged. The law of God cannot be. There are laws which are invoked, not because I like them, but simply because they're ordained by the Lord. And so that means to say I need to move to the next chapter because I'm trying to get to chapter 8. <clears throat> In chapter 7, oh, what a marvelous chapter, chapter 7. Nobody likes chapter 7. Particularly theologians. And the reason why theologians do not like chapter 7 is because it contradicts their own pet theories. Theologians are like mathematicians. They like to put everything in neat boxes. And if it doesn't fit the box, well, then there's something wrong with it. And theologians have got their own neat boxes and you dare not challenge the box. Or you dare not step out the box. If you do, you're anathema. Here, Paul makes statements in Romans chapter 7, which are challenging the theological box. The principle is this. God is responsible for the fact of freedom. We are responsible for the acts of it. God is responsible for producing it. We are responsible for performing it. In chapter 6, Paul has spoken of being the freedom from sin. In chapter 7, he begins to deal with freedom from a particular law. And so look at three things with me, casually in passing through this chapter. The purpose of the law. The law was given for the well-being of society. No society can function without a legal structure. No church can function without a legal structure. No business can operate without a legal structure. And the law was given 
for the well-being of the entity. In this case, it was given for the well-being of Israel. They had come out of Egypt as a bunch of slaves. They had no form of government. They had no means of operating legally or righteously, period. They certainly wouldn't know how to rule a land or even to possess a land. And so the Lord gave them his law to enable them to live as an organized society with the grace of God and for the glory of God. That's the purpose of the law. It had a legal structure so that men could be live righteous with one another. It had a liturgical structure so that man might live righteously with God. And so that was the essential element of the purpose for the law. But the problem of the law, the law pointed out the weakness of the human heart and the human mind. The law, when the law makes a statement, we try to break it. Don't die. I didn't say don't you, don't die. When I'm driving down the road and I see the sign is 60 mile an hour, I drive 64. Because they say in Texas, or not in Oklahoma, they give you five mile an hour grace. In Oakland, if you're half a mile over, they zap you. <laughs> I do 64. Bad boy. But you want to see the number of people who pass me by and honk at me because I'm not going fast enough? You tell a child, don't touch. You better tie that kid up. <laughs> because as soon as you turn your back, it's going to touch. I learned the hard way. I was a, sh I was a bad learner. My grandmother told me, don't touch. And so as the bowl of jello was set in, I touched. <laughs> and behold, my sin found me out. <laughs> and I regretted it. <clears throat> the problem with the law, it challenges, it condemns, but it cannot correct. We know the psychology of the law because it stirs up the worst within us to see if we can get, get away with it. In chapter 7, and theologians are afraid to admit it, but it is true. Paul's struggle is not with the system. Paul's struggle is with himself. You see, it's possible, it's possible to be financially prosperous and at the same time spiritually poor. 
it is possible to be physically strong at the same time spiritually weak. It is possible to be mathematically successful but morally bankrupt. And Paul is dealing with his own heart, with his own mind, with his own self. Now I know that people simply say, this was Paul writing before he was converted. Ah, that, you can't prove that from this passage. Paul is wanting to live a life which is pleasing to God because he's been justified, he's been declared guiltless. The price for redemption has been paid. He's in the right standing and he's growing in God's grace. And so he wants us to, first of all, front up to the reality of one's life. We all like to put on a good front, but honestly, when we face ourselves in the light and the searchlight of the magnificence of our God, we find ourselves wanting. That doesn't mean to say we are bad. It just means to say that we're not as good as we'd like to be. A classic illustration of this is the young prophet, Isaiah. Here is a man with a heart after God. Here is a man who's concerned about his nation. Here is a man that's weeping. His uncle had just died. One of the greatest kings that Israel had ever had. One of the most godly kings that Israel had ever had. But because of stupidity, he not only wanted to be a king, he also wanted to be a priest. As a king, he could do whatever he wished, except function as a priest. So Uzziah enters into the holy place, and God smites him with leprosy. He is removed from the palace, and he dies as a result of leprosy. And Isaiah is heartbroken. His cry is, now what's going to happen to Israel? He knew what the sons of Uzziah were, going to, were like. They were not made of the same cloth as their dad. Their dad had righteousness and a righteous instinct. They didn't. And so he begins to cry before the Lord. And you have this sob given in chapter 6, where he says, in the year that the king died, I sought the Lord. He leaves that out. He just said, I saw the Lord. In the result of his seeking, he sees something, and suddenly he becomes aware. He says, woe is me, for I am undone. Undone? Here's a young prophet living to the best of his ability, living to a higher standard than the average individual. But when put in a measuring 
rule of God's presence. So I'm undone. When we bow, it's easy to sing about the holiness of God. It's difficult to bow there. For the first reaction that comes to a man or woman who asks God, reveal yourself to me, is he reveals yourself to you. You may be better than everybody else in the room. You may be one of the best of your generation. But in the blazing light of his glory, you feel as though I'm so far short. I'm so far short of the glory of God. That doesn't mean I've lost my soul. That doesn't mean I'm a sinner. That simply means that I've got a long way to go in my development under the image of Jesus coming out in me. I had a friend. I don't have many friends, but I had a friend. He was a... His son was a very, very good violinist. And so he, he tried out for the the Welsh Orchestra, the Junior Welsh Orchestra. And everybody in the little village where I grew up said, hey, can't help but make it. He's brilliant. He's terrific. He's outstanding. No problem. He went for the first audition. And... Uh, he did his thing, and he did it very, very, very well. He was pleased with uh, the way he'd done it, and he knew he'd made it. The only problem is that he didn't impress the adjudicators. One person said to him, You've got talent. He said, you can be a great violinist, but you're not there yet. You've got a long way to go. And this young guy, because he knew it all, he said, what do you mean by that? the guy said, I'll show you. He said, what you played was very nice, but this is how it should have been played. And he picked up a violin and <laughs> he played the thing. My friend's son, his eyes almost popped out of his head. He'd been brought up in a small village where he was the idol of the village. There's only a few hundred people living in the village. He was the best of the bunch. 
until he stood in the presence. So he was dismissed. He knew he hadn't made it. He's walking out. He's angry. He's embarrassed. What's he going to tell his dad? He can't tell his dad. I goofed, dad. The strings broke while I was playing it. He couldn't say that. He had done his best. It wasn't good enough. As he's walking out, his dad was outside waiting for him, ready to get on the bus to come back home. He didn't have a car. We traveled everywhere by bus in our village. And as he was walking off, he hears a voice behind him. And the voice called him by name and put the Welsh word Bach behind it. The word Bach means little. But it doesn't, it's not a demeaning term. It's a diminutive term. It's a loving term. Just like uh, if you say Die Bach, you're really saying little David, but you mean more than little David. And he heard his name being called. He turned around. There was the adjudicator, the one who played the violin. He said, I'd like to teach you. He said, I like the gift that's in you. I'd like to teach you. Would you be willing to learn from me? The kid looked and he was so overwhelmed. He said, da, 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 da. That's how it is when we come in his presence. Overwhelmed by his beauty. Blinded by the brilliance of his glory. Profoundly moved by the sense of Kadosh. He says, come near. I'm not worthy to come near. Come near, son, daughter. Come near. You see, sanctification is becoming more and more like Jesus. And Paul, in chapter 7, is exposing himself. Not what theologians would try to simply say, here is the greatest man that ever lived, or the greatest apostle that we've ever had, the greatest mind in church history. He simply says, I have this treasure in an earthen vessel that the excellency of the power may be of God, may be of God and not of us. He said, I'm in this 
body. And because I'm in this body, there are tendencies, sinful tendencies, temptations, desires that I don't talk about. I don't even want to think about. And yet they keep cropping up in my mind, in my imagination, in my heart. And Paul is being brutally honest in writing the church at Rome. I have made it because I'm pronounced guiltless. I've been pardoned. I am making it by the blood of the Lamb and by the expression of his ongoing grace. He said, I will make it because that is body of mine it's going to be sown still in weakness. But there'll come a day when I'll be raised in power. This body of mine is going to be sown as a mortal. But there'll come a time when I'll be raised immortal. He said, then we'll kind of pass the saying which says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, with thy victory. The sting of death is sin. The strength of the sin of the Lord, but thanks be unto God, which giveth us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. The awareness of our weakness is not to drive us from Him, it's to draw us closer to Him. Every time there's this expression that takes place within you, a sense of weakness. Instead of saying, oh God, I, I thought it was over that. So we say, oh God, help me. The Apostle John said it this way. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But every time we confess our sin, he's faithful just to forgive us our sin and to wipe the record clean. That's not the way the King James says it, but you know what I mean. Do not allow your weakness to embarrass you or to enslave you or to drive you away. Allow it to draw you closer to him because, friend, in his eyes, we are beautiful because he sees the end product not just the, the present process. And we are in this process of being changed and being transformed. And so he cries out, Oh, wretched man that I am! Wretched Paul! But of course, this was before he got saved. No, it wasn't. It's the man who's been real with the issues of life. Who shall deliver me from this body of temptation? This vehicle which enables me to do that which is wrong. He turns, he simply says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. And that brings me to chapter 8. Let me make one more statement about chapter 7. 
and that is the Apostle Paul underscores the fact in the most complicated and the most challenging passages of, uh, of chapter 7. He underscores the, what we call the I factor. And he uses the personal pronoun, but he uses it in the present tense. He's not suggesting that this is what he was. He's underscoring this is what I'm struggling with. Can I be honest with you? If you are not struggling with something, you are not growing. If you're not struggling with something, you are not growing. That's what the sanctification process is all about. Growing to be like him. But then we come to the conquest, which is chapter 8. In chapter 7, we see a man as a victim. In chapter 8, we see a man as a victor. In chapter 7, we see a man in sin. In chapter 8, we see a man in Christ. In chapter 7, it's Christ's work for us. In chapter 8, it's Christ's work in us. In chapter 7, it's the record of conflict. In chapter 8, it's the record of conquest. In chapter 7, the personal pronoun I is used 30 times. In chapter 8, it occurs only two occasions. In chapter 7, the Holy Spirit is mentioned once. In chapter 8, he is mentioned 20 times. The last verse of chapter 7 is through Christ. The first verse of chapter 8 is in Christ. Ultimately, sanctification implies surrender. More than struggle. Look at the expression of vitality, which is verses 1 through 17. And I must be honest with you, we are in high cotton. You can tell I was brought up in the heart of Texas, can't you? <laughs> Paul underscores the dynamic of this new life which is in Christ Jesus. He's not talking about his struggle. He's not talking about his weakness. He's not talking about the sin of flesh. He's not talking about his soaring on wings of life. First of all, in verse 1, he speaks of the provision of the new life. There is therefore now no condemnation. 
And he's not simply used the word condemnation as a synonym for justification. He's simply saying, because there is no condemnation then, there is no condemnation now. Because by the blood of Jesus, I am free for then. I, by the blood of Jesus, I am free now. Because I'll be able to face God then, I can face God now. That even in my weakness, even in the poverty of my spirit, I can still stand before him. To come boldly before him. And somebody ought to say hallelujah to that. The provision of a new life. When you use the word catechrema, which simply says no condemnation, he's underscoring the fact there are no negative spiritual activity because of weakness in the now. That when I fall, I confess and get up. I don't run and hide because I know the arms of love are open to receive me and to restore me, and to set me on the path again. The provision of a new life. Oh, but he also talks of the privilege of the new life. To them, though in the physical body, we are in the body, but we're also in Christ. Say that with me. Though we are in the body, we are also in Christ. In the body, there's weakness. In Christ, there's victory. Hallelujah. But then look at the principle of new life. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. The principle is this. It takes a law to break a law. I have a nasty habit when I get on an airplane. I sit down, I relax, and my eyes are out the window looking. Because I know that that pilot and co-pilot, when they set that thing in motion, they make a decision. Whether to go from V1 or to V2. While they're in the stage of V1, they can stop that birdie Somewhere on the tarmac. Once they hit V2, they're either going to fly or, Mama, Mama, here I come. <laughs> and for that reason, they tell me, I don't know, that when they're going forward, both hands, the hand of the captain and the hand of the co-pilot, are on that thing, keep it there. Until, are they watching it? They're watching all the, the signs, and suddenly, I'm still looking out the window. And the thing getting faster and faster and faster, and then the front lifts up. I think, okay, here we go. And then the plane rises up. 
It takes a law to break a law. That the law of gravity is overcome by the law of the power of thrust that's found in those engines. And as long as those engines are producing that maximum thrust, I'll fly away, oh glory. I'll fly away. Won't be long before I'm going to make my destination. But if something goes pop, I'm going to start saying, coming home, Lord. I think I'm coming home. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is breaking in me the law of sin, the law of death. I'm sorry. The spirit of life is having this profound impact upon my being. That when it seems to me that I'm ready to capitulate, or I'm ready to jam on the brakes and stop saying, I think it's too risky. The law of the spirit of life wants me to soar, to rise to higher heights, to see greater things, to feel a greater power, and to know a much mightier presence. Obviously, that didn't mean anything to you. Let me go on. The principle of a new life, it takes a law to break a law. The power of a new life, Paul says, for what the law could not do. The law could condemn me. The law could correct me. But it couldn't do anything else. And because that law was at work, but God did something in sending forth his son and the three phases of the ministry of Jesus is found in these verses. Sending his own son that speaks of his deity in the likeness of sinful flesh that speaks of his humanity as an offering for sin that speaks of his atonement power of the new life. There is something in me. There is something in you which is pushing you forward. It's the spirit of motivation of the spirit of God motivating you to come higher, to be better, to achieve more, to accomplish more for the grace, in the grace of God and for the glory of his name. But then there's a priority of the new life. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are called the spirit, the things of the spirit. After the flesh simply means to be possessed and dominated by things of time. It is imperative, my brothers, my sisters, for we live in time. We function in time. But it is imperative that we spend some of that time.
time and looking at higher things. It doesn't matter how long it is for you. Don't let anybody put a, a burden or a guilt trip on you. But every one of us needs to spend time in which we touch the eternal. I'm not talking of religious exercise. I'm talking of that which is existential. That you touch someone. That you can honestly say, I met the Lord. The power of a new life. But the priority of a new life, because we are in the flesh, we have to take care of earthy matters. But we also need to exercise the heavenly alternative to rise in the newness of it. Look at the pleasure of the new life. Verse 9 through 11. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit of life because of righteousness. For if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Jesus from the dead shall give life also to your mortal bodies through the spirit that dwells in you. In the now, that means that he wants to quicken us. In the future, it means that he'll raise us. That we, those who live until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, will go through that sense of transformation. But those who have died in Christ, death will not be a hindrance to them. They'll be quickened by the living spirit of God. Hallelujah. And so the purpose of a new life. We have become obligated to God, not to the flesh. There's a commercial on TV which I think is kind of cute. I think it's for Dish Network. I think, I think that's what the commercial is, is about. <coughs> It shows a guy that's moving, taking all his stuff and putting it in a van. And a friend is standing by his, behind him and somebody says, uh, do you need a helping hand? He said, no, I got it. And then the, the other guy says, you remember I borrowed 500 bucks from you? The guy said, yeah. You think he's going to say, okay, here it is. I'm going to pay my debt. But he doesn't. He says, uh, do you remember that I talked to you about the transferring of your cable network to the home where you're going? And he gives the name of the thing. And he says, I've saved you more than $500. Now you owe me. <laughs> <clears throat> and the guy was pushed to the car in the box of the truck. 
He just nods his head while the other guy is jumping up down with excitement. <laughs> because of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of what he's done for us. And because of what he's doing in us. Of what he continues to do through us. We have become debtors. To his amazing grace. The prerogatives of the new life for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And we have received the Spirit of adoption. I gotta quit. Adoption in the days of the Apostle Paul is not the same as adoption that's given in our day. In our day, when we talk of adoption, we talk of adopting um, a baby or a little child. That's not what adoption meant in the days of the Apostle Paul. If there was a wealthy family, that wealthy family didn't have a heir, they would look for someone whom they could appoint to become the heir. And so in looking for that someone, he'd have to be gifted to be able to run the family business <clears throat> or to follow in the family steps. It didn't matter whether he's young, middle-aged or old. If he could do the task, And he'd be challenged. Are you prepared to take on my name? Yes. Are you prepared to take on my business and run it the way that I run it? With the same purpose, with the same prerogatives. If the guy said yes, then they would go through what they call the adoption. That person would be pronounced as being his heir. From then on out, that man could call himself either by his original name or by the surname of the new family he's become a part of. It was an indication that they were to carry on something. We have become adopted. Not in this sense of the modern term, but we've become adopted because we are called to carry on his name. But more than that, to be involved in his business that what he was involved in doing, we had to become involved in doing it. We carry his name so that we would live in such a manner as not to disgrace the name of our new parent. As we come to a close tonight, I'm sorry for 
meandering so much, but that comes with age. <laughs> if you don't remember anything else, remember this. We have been given a new name that we might fulfill the Father's mission for the glory of his name. And we don't do it with our own strength. We do it because we have enjoyed the life of Christ, which is in us. Good night. God bless you. Bye-bye.